Isn't God good? Amen. We serve an awesome God. Amen. Thank you, uh, Bishop and the pastoral staff, for this opportunity. I have a good bit to go over, so I'm going to get right into it this evening. Um, I'm not going to start off with a, a verse. We're going to go through actually a little bit of a chapter tonight. So I'm just going to give you my title, a quick prayer, and we'll jump into it if that's okay. So I'm going to talk about God's verdict tonight, God's verdict. So let's pray if you don't mind. Father, we thank you for your presence that we have already felt in this place this evening. We pray that the word will come forth this evening, God, and let, may it begin to shape our lives. May it convict us, change us. Let the word bring forth life and restoration and hope and may it increase our faith and make us better Christians, all for thy name's sake. In the wonderful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, okay, prelude. I want to give you just a quick disclosure. I'm going to be speaking. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 1, uh, the first chapter of Isaiah. I do want to just disclose the same time, this uh, last time I preached out of Isaiah as well, I said the same thing, that Isaiah was written for a specific people in a specific time, and not everything in Isaiah can be taken. We must take the context with it and see what's applicable today. Um, but with that being said, we can still derive principles out of Isaiah. We can still take uh, and learn about God and his nature and Isaiah, because we know that the same God in Isaiah's day is the same God we have today. The Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let's learn a little bit about God's nature. Let's see what's going on in Isaiah chapter 1 and what can we take from it. So Isaiah chapter 1 has the theme of a courtroom scene. This is agreed on by, by most scholars and anybody who's done research in Isaiah chapter 1. It presents itself almost as a court scene in which God is the judge and he brings forth uh, Judah to trial. And um, a lot of times when I read Isaiah chapter 1, I put myself in the place of Judah. I put myself on trial, and God's the judge. And I ask, if you will, to imagine yourself in the seat of Judah tonight and see if you can relate, for I know I will. Um, we're going to start in verse 2, and we're going to read just a few verses. We're going to kind of popcorn read tonight to get the main idea for time's sake. Verse 2, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. This is God calling the heavens and the earth to, to hear what he's about to say. It's almost like they're the jury, if you imagine, in a court, uh, as they were there whenever God made the covenant with Judah. Uh, they're here to witness what God has to say as he puts them on trial. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the donkey his master's crib, but Israel doth not know my people do not consider a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger. They have gone away backward. Okay, so God starts by calling the heavens and the earth to listen, and he says that he has nursed the people. He's taken care of them. He's brought them up, but they have rebelled against him, and they do not even know who their owner is, whereas the donkey and the ox do. So I want to also point out the phrasing in that last verse, chapter 4, that we read. He says, they have gone away backwards. In other words, we consider this, you know, backsliding, as we would like to say uh, today. There's a certain notion in our minds as far as what we think when we consider backsliding. We think of someone, you know, leaving the church. Um, however, in this case, in Judah's case, we see that backsliding happened to individuals whose actions appear like they are in church, who, for today's example, would be someone who is in church, yet Isaiah, God, calls them backsliders. So I just want to kind of point that out, that we have a notion of what backsliding looks like, but it's not always what we imagine, where someone just forsakes the church and leaves completely. The truth is, backsliding can happen to a faithful attendant to church. So I just want to point that out. We're going to talk a little more about that here. So God is not pleased with the hearts of the children of Judah. 
In verses 11 through 14, God continues his case against Judah, stating that they have not ceased their sacrifices, their assemblies, aka, you know, their church services like we're in today, uh, or their festivals unto God, which were all actions and events that were good in nature. Verse 14, it says, your new moons and appointed feasts, my soul hateth, this is God, and they are, are, they are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. God said he is weary to bear their, their sacrifices and their feasts. So does this mean that the act of making a sacrifice to God was wrong or them attending service is wrong? Absolutely not. That's not what he's saying. What God is saying here is that he doesn't want those actions taken where it's just marking something off of a checkbox, just out of obligation to come to church. That's what God is saying. There's nothing wrong. There's actually, it's a good thing to make sacrifices. It's a good thing to go to church. But God was looking deeper than the external. He was looking deeper than the facade that people put on their face. He was looking within the heart of the people. And perhaps the most disappointing thing to God about the state of the nation is that they were still religious. They still attended services. They made sacrifices, but the inside was cold. There was nothing there. And that's what God did not like. He did not want that. He wanted uh, uh, the heart of someone who was chasing after him, who was passionate for God. That's why God looked upon David. He said he didn't look on the external. He looked at the heart of man. And God desires for a heart that is sincere and passionate for him. Later in the book of Isaiah, uh, the Lord says in, in Isaiah 29, 13, wherefore the Lord said, for as much as this people will draw near to me with their mouth and with their lips they do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Basically saying that their mouth says the right things. They come to church, they, they do the right motions whenever it's time to worship God and, and everything looks good, but their heart is not there. Their heart is missing. That passion is missing. That, that first love that they had for Christ is not there. They're going through church. You're, they're attending faithfully. They give to the kingdom, just like the sacrifices. And the outside looks good, but inside they're struggling. Their faith is struggling. They're not where they want to be in life. Their heart is cold, and they're having a hard time feeling the presence of God. This is a real issue in the church today. I can speak up from experience that I have been in church and I have slid back from God. It is possible to be in church, attend faithfully, and not always be pursuing after the things of God. And it's a real issue that needs to be dealt with and needs to address. So coldness within is what the children of Israel were facing during this time. And this state reminds me of the church of Ephesus in which Christ addresses in Revelation chapter 2. And you can read in verse 4 if you would like. Uh, this was the church he was speaking to. Individuals who were still attending services, they were still showing up to services and doing all the right things. But in Revelation, this is what God says. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Somewhat wasn't there in the original text. So really it reads, I have something against thee because thou hast left thy first love. This is what Jesus is saying. I have something against you because you left that first love. You're seem, you seem a little cold these days. You seem like you're not really passionate about the things of God. You seem like you're just checking off a checklist when you come to church just to say you came. And God says, I have something against that. That's something I can't stand with. And we can imagine the church of Ephesus being on trial just as Judah was. And we can imagine ourselves being on trial just as Judah was and the church of Ephesus was. And now we await the verdict of God as we have made a mistake, we have fallen from God, we have become cold, and we have to look unto God for that judgment, as we're reading here in Isaiah chapter 1. I also want to make it clear that God is a God of justice. 
Okay? The term justice is used all throughout Scripture, and 425 times it is used in the Old Testament, 42 times in the book of Isaiah. And the word in the book of Isaiah oftentimes can be translated to God's law, the court, or the verdict rendered by the court, is what justice means a lot of the times in Isaiah. So as we read the verdict, reading in verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 1, we are reading of the justice of God. So let's see what God's verdict is for us, for the church of Ephesus, for Isaiah and and the children of Judah in in this story that we're going through. Come now and let us reason together. Reason in this sense can be defined as to decide in a court case. Come let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The goodness and mercy of God is shown through his verdict that although our sins are many, and although we don't deserve justice and we don't deserve a second chance, God is willing to extend his arms out and welcome us back in. Even when we come to church and we're not feeling it, just know that God's arms are always open. Just as the prodigal ran home, ran back to his father after he had left him, the father saw him and ran out to him. His arms were open, and that is the same God that we have today. He has a verdict of second chances. He has a verdict of mercy and grace. He has a verdict that no matter how far we go, he still loves us, he still wants us, and he still draws for us. God's verdict is one of second chances. And it's the same thing applied to the church of Ephesus, as we read in that Revelation chapter 2. If you keep reading down, you will see that God offers them a chance to repent, just like he did in Isaiah. And he says that if you will overcome these challenges, you shall eat of the tree of life, meaning that you will have eternal salvation, meaning that I will grant you forgiveness, and I will let you live with me in glory one day. God is a God of second chances. Romans 5, 8 uh, it's one of the most mind-blowing scriptures to me as I, as I wrap up here this evening. It's a scripture that almost, I lack a better word than audacious, and the fact that I can't begin to comprehend it and understand it. But Romans 5.8, it says, But God commendeth his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, there's justified again, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. It never ceases to amaze me to know that God died for me while I was at my worst. Not whenever I was at my best. Not whenever I'm doing everything right. God died for me whenever I was at my absolute lowest point in life. And he always extends his mercy. So I just wanted to leave you with this thought tonight that God's verdict, he has not, he has not put down his gavel yet and said, case closed. They're done. There is still hope. There are still second chances. We can still find salvation in Jesus no matter where we're at in life. Amen. You may come, Pastor Trevor. Thank you. Come on, I wonder if we can receive that just for a moment tonight. Mm. Thankful for a God of second chances. A God who saw me at my lowest. A God who saw me at my darkest, yet still chose to die for me, that I might live. (laughs) Hallelujah. Thank you, Brother Mac. I know you're heading out downstairs, but what a wonderful word that he shared with us. And you'll hear a lot of similarities tonight again in what I'm preaching on, teaching on tonight. Um, I would like to turn to the book of Second Peter chapter 3, and I have a bit of a longer passage here, about 10, 10 11 verses uh, that I'm going to read here, so um, let's go ahead and get started with that. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse number 8. 
But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men, some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless." And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest you also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So tonight, uh, for the remainder of our time together, I'm going to be teaching on a topic which comes right from verse number 11 of the passage I just read, and that is the manner of persons we ought to be. The manner of persons we ought to be. And since we have already prayed, I am just I'm going to get right into the word for tonight. And what I want to start by doing during this uh, Bible study that we have is to kind of give the spark notes version if you will, of the chapters leading up to chapter 3 and how they really build up to the topic for tonight. The verses and chapters as we know them that we read that lead up to this passage in chapter 3, beginning with the Lord not being slack concerning His promise and the importance of who we need to be as believers are broken down in such a way. Peter starts his second epistle shortly after the greeting of those of like precious faith with an encouragement that we can have the Lord's power within by being partakers of the divine nature. And with that, reminding the reader that with Jesus, we have everything we need. With Jesus, we have everything we need. Not just some of this or some of that, but everything. And with that, Peter writes the first instruction, if you will, of his second letter saying, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to your virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. And furthermore, to grow in these things and hold close to them. Hold so tight to these things because they will help you be and stay in the image 
of God. In looking just a few verses later, Peter exhorts the reader to make their calling and election sure, saying, be eager to do what God wants you to do, what God has called you to do. But then a little further down, Peter basically sets it all on the table, sets it all right in front of us like a big smorgasbord, saying, believe the word. Believe this. Don't listen to the naysayers who doubt the Lord's coming. The naysayers are saying that you can't understand, but Peter puts it to rest by saying no scripture is of private interpretation. And this prophecy came not by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Meaning if something you hear does not line up with the Word, it's not the Word. Don't believe it. Furthermore, be like the Bereans and study the Word. Not in the sense that you have to be paranoid or, and take everything, you know, but, you know, we take everything with a grain of salt, but so you can make your calling and election sure and further influence the manner of person you ought to be. And as we continue reading uh, in uh, chapter 2, Peter focuses on the destructiveness of false teaching and warning of that. Because the people who were preaching false doctrine were sowing that doubt, which is, what, which is why Peter wrote this in the first place, to remind them of who they are. If you ever wonder why you see people coming to this pulpit or wherever they go and preach and teach the way they do, I believe part of that reason is because there is so much tug from the world and there is so much information out there that isn't quite the whole counsel of God. And that preacher goes to battle. And it's a battle for your souls. Hallelujah. It's a battle for morality. It's a fight for what is right. It's a fight for the truth. It's God reaching to the depths, reaching for those who have found themselves in the muddy trenches or those who have found themselves in the pig pen eating with the pigs. It's those who have become so caught up, hear me, in the day-to-day, because just as I'm reminding you, so I was reminded that sometimes we get so caught up in the day-to-day that the eternal tends to be the furthest thing from our mind. The eternal tends to be the furthest thing from our mind, and maybe it's just not something you think about. But the Lord does not want you to forget. He does not want you to fall into the trap. So I say to you today, as you may already know, get into His Word. And as you get into His Word, as you listen to the teachings of the Word, as you receive the preached Word, as you get into it and study it for yourselves, as you join during these midweek Bible studies, as you join on Sundays and and other Bible studies that you may have, you may hear things 
that you don't understand. But remember, too, God is not the author of confusion. And that's a good thing, and that it is a good thing, excuse me, to ask questions. It's a good thing to ask questions. Here, a few days ago, I had a discussion with the bishop because I had some questions, and I, and I began to talk to Bishop about it, and, and I've had discussions with other people in the past. I'm like, well, well what about this? Like, like, like what, what, what is this saying? I, I need a little help in understanding this. Now, it, it wasn't all just that person that I was talking to because obviously there was some prayer involved too because I'm like, Lord, I know there may be something here, and sometimes it comes in that form of correction. Sometimes it comes in that form of, of conviction. Sometimes it comes and says, hey, Trev, just, just move on from that a little bit because maybe I'm looking a little too deep. Truth be told, if I never asked questions in the Bible studies or discussions that I've had with people or the discussions that I've had, you know, with anybody for that matter, or, or you know, that's not to say I'm not getting into that or, or praying for understanding, but sometimes that understanding comes through another person. Sometimes that understanding may only come through that conversation there. And you never know when, when they might have a question that, that you, that, that, that God has showed you already. There's been countless times where we've been, we've been you know, ironing, sharpening, ironing, and, and, and the sword, sharpening the sword. You know, we're, we're both talking back and forth to one another. You know, that person says one thing, and then I say another, and we're sharpening one another. Oh, hallelujah. So you understand getting into his word, studying it, praying through it, meditating on it is the best way to ward off these false teachings. And two, the best way to step out of the world is to step into his word. And remember, you, you can't really know him unless you get into his word. To know his voice is to know his word, the word of God. His word is his voice. Are you thankful for that? Are you thankful that we have his word that can teach us, that can convict us, that, that, that can correct us, that can show us the way where we may not understand the way? Oh, come on. Hallelujah. And now leading to the passage for tonight, Peter writes, Seeing that all these things be dissolved, these things that heaven and earth passing away with a great noise and the elements melting away with fervent heat, seeing that these things be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Here we go. How do we do this? What manner of persons should we be? What does this have to do with our topic for this month on maturity? In holy conversation, we can understand this as living uh, lives of holy conduct. And if you read Either one of the letters from Peter, Peter does reference quite a bit about living holy lives. We find his most specific teaching, if you will, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, which reads, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy." We should strive to be holy in all that we do. 
with this in reaching inward, this mark that Paul references, pressing toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ, we are to be more and more like our Lord, and we are to live as He lives. And the only way we can do that is if we keep reaching for Him, if we keep trying to get into His presence, if we, if we stay in His presence, if we stay in that two-way conversation with Him, where sometimes we do the talking and sometimes He does the talking right back. We've got to stay in that relationship with Him. We've got to stay there with Him. And as we live holy and be holy in all manner in conversation and mature more in the Lord in that His holiness should increasingly replace our natural characteristics of those things which are not of God. Namely, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if I can say it in such a way, because I always try to bring this back down, if I were to stand up here today and tell you, uh, live holy, it will be easy. Temptations aren't going to harm you. I would be standing before you as a liar, and I would hope, for, hope that one of you would have a tomato in your hand and throw it at me. Say, get off the stage. Because I know, and I hope you realize, that that is not true. What is true is that as you continue in the Lord and continue to strive to live that way, which is a pleasing and acceptable to God, the temptations that once grabbed you won't be able to grip you any longer. I'm not saying those temptations are just going to go away because I look from the very beginning of time how, how Eve was tempted. She was tempted and she, she chose to turn away because she saw something that was so good. But it wasn't after until she was tempted. It wasn't after until she was deceived that that was really good. So we've got to stay so close to Jesus that we've got to put these spiritual blinders on, if you will, so we can see nothing but Him. Oh, that fruit may look good over there, but I'm not going to eat of it because I know I've got to stay focused on him. Oh, that, that thing may, might look enticing that way, but I've got to keep my eyes fixed on him. Otherwise, I'm going to lose track. And let me just tell somebody, if you feel like you're off track today, regain your focus. Regain your focus. Put those glasses back on as, as Bishop talked about a few weeks ago and gain your focus on him and continue to stay focused on him. Those other things will start to look more blurry. Come on, somebody. Those other things will start to blur because your focus is so solely on him that nothing else matters. Everything else seems to fall away, but your relationship with him continues to grow because you continue to strive toward him and with him in every way, in all holy conversation and manner. And if you find yourself here today with burdens, you've come with burdens, maybe you've come with troubles, maybe you've come with addictions, with anything at all, I want to tell you that Jesus is here. And you can meet him here today. You can meet him on your way to wherever you may go after this. You may meet him as you're walking out the door tonight, but you can meet him here. You can meet him in your home if you're watching online. You can meet him in your car on your way to work if you're driving on your way to work. You can meet him for he is with you always. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Clap your hands to the Lord, everybody. Woo!
Hallelujah. Thank He will meet you wherever you call on him. And as we read just a couple words later, hallelujah, in verse uh, 11 of chapter 3, Peter writes that we also must live lives of godliness. And putting it like this, in order for us to live godly lives, we must be like him. I get so overwhelmed when I think about it because the more I, the more I choose to, to follow him and, and, and to be like him, the more I desire to be like him, as I've just said it already, things begin to matter less and less because I just want to do what's pleasing to him. I want to live like him. I want to live in his image. I want to live according to his purpose. And in order for me to do that, there's got to be some things that need to go. There's got to be some things that I need to step aside. And in living like him, what can't we do? We can't live in the flesh, as I've said already, which we were warned about a couple of times leading up to this. We see in the parable of the talents that Jesus spoke about, where the master gave some talents, one ten, one five, and one he gave two. And like the good servant who did not bury the talents, so we, in striving to live godly lifestyles, should not bury those talents in which Jesus has given us. No, but rather be the good servant. Be the wise steward of those talents that take them, multiply them, don't bury them. Allow God to use you as he desires to do so. And another element of this living and who we ought to be is looking for his second coming. Looking for a second coming. God, who is faithful, is asking his people to remain faithful and to look for toward his second come, his coming. And to not only look, but to look with expectation. <laughs> to look with expectation, but also to bring as many people with as you can. I want heaven to be crowded. I don't know about you, but I want heaven <laughs> to be crowded. I want there to be standing room only. Oh, hallelujah. To reach for our communities, we must reach for them. We must reach for those friends in need. We must reach to those coworkers, which I've heard people reaching for. We must reach for those family members. We must re faithfully keep uh, watch and ready, be ready for his expected return, and all the while doing so in reaching for others. And I want to show you something from the, the parable of the, the wise and the, and the foolish virgins. The, the foolish virgins were not faithful, the, and thus they were not prepared. They ran out of oil because they lost sight of what was about to occur, and the door was closed on them. But the wise, oh, the wise virgins, they were looking for his coming and were adequately prepared. They were ready. They had enough oil. They had enough. And I just want to talk about that for a little bit, the oil, the oil for the lamps, the lamp which, which gives reference to that light that you have, that light that lives in you. If you don't keep it fed, what will happen? Somebody tell me, what will happen? It'll die. 
You'll run out if you don't keep it fed. If you don't keep that oil in that lamp, that lamp's going to run out. It's going to run out. But, but how do you keep it from running out? You stay faithful to him. You stay faithful to his word. You be diligent in your reading and your studying. You be diligent in your prayer life. You be diligent in your daily walk with God. I die daily, Paul says. Why? Because if I don't, I am going to lose sight of why I'm here. I am going to let my oil run out. I don't want my lamp to run dry. I want to make sure that I have enough oil so that I am ready for when he returns. And in reaching back to that parable of the talents and stitching that together with verse 12 here in chapter 3, when Peter writes, looking for and hasting, this hasting is desiring. I desire that he comes, and that is a good way to live, to haste for his coming. Oh, I desire to see that day one day. And I don't know about you. Well, well I'd like to think I do, but, but I can't wait for the return of Jesus. I can't wait for the return of Jesus. But two, since we can't wait while in the waiting, we should be involved in the harvest. We should be involved in those things of God. We should be involved because why? Those fields are ready for harvest. Those fields are ready, and now we need some people to go into the harvest. We need some people to go and work the fields. We need some people to go into the harvest. For Jesus says the laborers are few. And let it not be from the church of Omaha that the laborers are few. Hallelujah. The fields will only be ready for so long hear me so go 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 to the fields go reach for others pull them while they are ready be Jesus to him and take his light with you hallelujah and oh that we heed to the words of Jesus in John 4 where he says I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day the night comes when no man can work. His words that he spoke concerning the work he was to do also reflects the, the re, also reflected in the great commission that he gives to his church to go and make disciples of all nations. We are not just called to bask in the presence of God, even though we must take time for that. We are not just called to have our hands lifted at all times, hear me. There's, there are times for that, and we should take time for it, but that's not all. We are not called to sleep like the foolish virgins who miss their opportunity because their oil ran dry. No, we are called. We are called to be laborers. We are called to be laborers, and if we are to hasten the coming of the Lord, we should live holy and godly lives. And as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? A new creature. Old things are what? They are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Thank you. And so it is true with the earth as it too must dissolve away and make room for the new heavens and earth. Peter proceeds with this encouragement of hope and triumph. We should be looking for him.
And we can look forward to the day when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Hallelujah. And as we continue in this passage and study together, Peter says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot. And blameless. Because we are looking for the coming of Christ, Peter states that we should do our part and be diligent to make every effort to be ready to be found in Him. This term diligent is the same word that Peter used in the first part of 2 Peter, where he writes, Make their calling and election sure. But Peter does not leave the reader high and dry, and so I don't want to leave you high and dry because Peter walks through how to be ready to be found in him. Oh, we must be ready in peace. That peace which means much more than just quietness. That is peace which comes from the Lord. He is that peace that passes understanding. Have you ever had a time in your life where you just didn't know why things were happening, but when you called on the Lord, His peace came over you? Oh, I can testify of a bunch of times where I didn't understand what was going on over here, and rather than choose to just let my mind circle around with those that I called on, Jesus, help me. I need you. I can't do this without you. In those moments of desperation, his peace that passes understanding, oh, oh it just outweighs everything. I, I don't know if I can do due diligence in explaining it, but it just outweighs everything because there's no peace like his peace. I encourage you today, if you need to call on him for some peace, to do it in Jesus' name because he is the author of it. He is that peace that passes understanding. I don't know, I, I don't know if you're ever going to understand what's happening over here, but Jesus is going to see you through it as that peace that passes understanding as that peace that goes beyond any understanding as that peace that we may not be able to comprehend but is what he gives thank you Jesus you know you may think you can find peace in something else but there's no peace like the peace that comes from the Lord and I'm sorry if you've been mistaken but nothing compares not even a little bit to the peace that comes from the Lord the world says that you can't find peace in your difficulties but God's peace comes in the middle of those trials the world will say that peace is just the absence absence of circumstance but God's peace can be found in any circumstance and did I mention that nothing compares to his peace I wonder if we can just receive that for a moment. Yeah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Peter also says to be ready without spot. This is that urge to flee from the very appearance of evil. To abstain from those things which may cause you to fall. To flee from those things which may appear good on the outside, but in reality are evil, are wrong, and are going to deter your relationship with him. So that when Christ returns, he would find us ready, born again, hallelujah, living without spot, walking in the light as he is in 
the light. Remember what darkness is. It is merely the absence of what? It is the absence of light. As you walk in the light, guess what? Darkness has to flee. And it's all by and through Jesus, our Redeemer. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. And next, we must also walk blameless. And to that, there is only one in all of the universe who, can, who is capable of making us blameless. Without Jesus... One may try to just hide the sin or, or, or justify it in some way, shape, or form. But God does not ignore or rationalize concerning sin. No, he, he takes sin very seriously. So much that he, he robed himself in flesh. Was tempted in every way that we could ever be, yet blameless and without sin himself died on the cross for our sins, was buried in the tomb, took away the penalty for our sins. Oh, hallelujah. I know we are gearing up for a Resurrection Sunday here in a couple of weeks, how Jesus did that for you and for me. But if we are not found in him to be living this holy and godly lifestyle, the harsh reality is that we can only blame ourselves. But hear me. There is still opportunity tonight. There is still opportunity now. There may not be, therefore, opportunity tomorrow. Yes, God is gracious. Yes, He is patient. Yes, He is the God of second chances. Yes, He is long-suffering and has been with me. I can tell you some times where He's had to practice a little extra of that long-suffering with me, let me tell you. And I look around the sanctuary tonight, and I see some of you, as I may not know all of your testimonies, but I know that there are those that allowed God to enter in such a way as they never have before, and God did just that. And let me tell you, they've never been the same. You've never been the same. And I see those of you who have had that road to Damascus moment like Paul who, who finally received the truth. The scales began to fall from his eyes and there were, they were opened to Jesus, the Redeemer. And I see those of you who can testify of tough situations that God has brought you through and will continue to bring you through. And oh, how that encourages me. It encourages me to know that you are trusting in the Lord and leaning not on what you know, but more importantly, what he knows. And I'm also thankful that we serve a God who forgives. I am thankful that he found me when I was lost and that I experienced salvation in him. But remember, church, this life, this holy life, this godly life, this new life experienced through salvation in Jesus is a choice. It is a choice. Do you desire to live in peace without spot and blameless and experience the salvation that comes from the Lord? Or are your desires otherwise? I may not know where each of you stand in regards to your desire to, to do these things or not, but just remember that if you desire to or if you are, are already that, and, and making the right choice, which is life everlasting, it is far greater than what is to come otherwise. 
Throughout his entire letter, Peter is doing what we can view as really building up to this final point that I'm going to touch on tonight. And as Peter closes his letter and gets ready to send it off, he writes, You therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things. In other words, remember what you know. Hide it right here. From the beginning, Peter said he is writing to remind his readers of what they already know. Both of his letters, for that matter, are written to stir up pure minds of the readers because, as I stated moments ago, sometimes we can just get distracted with the day-to-day. And so we read of the challenge where this rubber-meets-the-road moment, if you will, that it's time to be that that doer of the Word. You've heard the Word. Now take action of it. It's time to translate these reminders into actions, to live as though we remember and believe those things that we are instructed and reminded about as we read. This knowledge that we read must be applied into our lifestyle. There were those then who struggled in their faith in Christ and those today who may struggle in their faith in Christ. There were those who literally suffered for their faith in Christ, some of which we may never experience here, but I won't go down that rabbit trail too much today. But but persecution, attacks from the enemy in any way, shape, or form are a surefire way of telling me that what? I am on the right track. I am right where I need to be. Why? Because as I find my way on this path of life and life everlasting, Satan, on the other hand, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And as you run to Jesus and walk with him in every way that you can, the enemy begins to take note. He says, oh, i got to do something. So if you find yourself today, if you find yourself maybe in the middle of some persecution of any kind, take courage. If you find yourself in the midst of that, if you find yourself struggling in any way, take heart. Keep those eyes, keep your heart, and keep your mind fixed on him. He has a plan for your life. Build yourself upon the rock, Jesus Christ, and live daily with Him and for Him. Without this, not only should you live, but also stir others up to do the same. Amen? But even so, Peter warns against falling. Beware lest you fall from your steadfastness. Some will say that there is no need to worry about falling. But if that were the case, then Peter would have What Peter wrote was in vain, but just to let you know, he didn't write in vain. If that were the case, then Paul wrote in vain when he wrote, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. This is the part of maturity and growing in Christ, because while while that should not be the sole focus, what to stay away from, as I touched a few moments ago, we should be aware lest we fall. And remember, too, that Jesus has promised a way to be secure in him. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He made a way for you to get to him, and he is waiting for you now with open arms if you're still on your way, if you're still having doubts about it. There he waits for you. 
Grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Here, here we are coming to an end. When we choose to follow Him, we also choose to turn away from that which is not of Him. When we grow in Christ, we are resisting error. The Bible has so much to say about growing up in Christ and about growing up and maturing in Him. But just to name a few, Paul writes in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up him in Him in all things. In Colossians we read, being rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. In Hebrews we are encouraged to move on from the elementary things and on to maturity in Christ. In Psalm 92, the righteous will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that, will be, those that be planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bring forth fruit in old age. They will be fat and flourishing to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. And the apostles with a strong desire to grow look to Jesus saying, increase my faith. Increase my faith. And as I prayed about how I should bring this all to a close tonight, I really felt the Lord impress upon me that we as a church should close out in some prayer. So that's what I want to do here. Now, I know we always close out in prayer in some way, shape, or form, but God is desiring to graft some things into you tonight. So while the sound team brings up the song that I've asked them to play, I want us to pray. I want us to seek his face for a moment. I'm not going to stand up here and pray over everybody, but I want us all to pray. If you want to find a place to pray, then go ahead and find a place right now. If you want to stay where you're at, then pray where you are. If you're joining us online tonight and you, you, you need to find a place to pray, go ahead and find that place right now. Or maybe you've got to come back later, but pray and seek his face. Seek him. Seek his desires for your life. Let us pray in Jesus' name. That I must change I know sometimes that you must make me new again So I will remain In the potter's hands And I will stay there Forever in God's plan So God would you mold me And Lord would you